Okay, we're bringing in Secretary Pompeo. Hello, Shmuley. How are you? Secretary Pompeo, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. You are uh, in, you are incredibly uh, punctual. We're at twenty second. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Secretary. May I ask you uh, where where you are in the United States right now? Yes, I'm in I'm in Washington D.C. I'm sitting at the Hudson Institute. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get uh, right to it. Um, no need to delay. What an honor to have with us, uh, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo. Uh, I am a very big fan of the Secretary. Uh, when he completed his tenure as uh, Secretary of State just over a month ago, uh, he had uh, clocked up an incredible record, uh, not just on things that are very important to us as an organization and to me as an individual. Obviously, the America-Israel relationship, unprecedented, and the Trump administra administration's support guided by Secretary Pompeo for the Jewish state. Um, but well beyond that, uh, America as a moral force, as America as a superpower with a, a very strong um, foreign policy as it relates to human rights. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Mr. Secretary, once again, let me, on everyone's behalf, let me thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you all. So one of the, let's begin with just the, the constant tension that exists in foreign policy between the individual needs and interests of a nation and humanitarian interests, uh, the higher moral and ethical questions. We saw these things um, the, the, this tension existing during the George W. Bush presidency, Saddam Hussein, according to the New York Times in March of 2003, had killed um, about 1.1 million people. He had killed 800,000 Arabs, 300,000 Kurds. So forget about weapons of mass destruction. There seemed to have been a moral imperative. How do we leave a man like that in power? On the other hand, many Americans are isolationists. They feel that we should be building roads back home. And why are we spending a trillion dollars? And most importantly, why are we expending the, tre the, the, the real treasure, the blood of our patriotic soldiers, our servicemen and women in other countries. How does a country find the balance? And when you served as Secretary of State, how, how do you find the balance between the moral imperative of standing up for human rights and stopping dictatorships, et cetera? Before we get to see even more serious things like genocide, how do we find the balance between a human rights agenda and a country, in, in general, the United States in particular, protecting its own interests? Well, the, the tension is uh, often real, but sometimes, frankly, nations overplay the tension uh, in the aim of doing nothing. Um, we, we always focus, we began with the focus as follows. We, we, we knew we had an obligation to be a force for good in the world, but we also knew that at the end of the day, we swore an oath and allegiance to the United States and to defend our people here inside the United States. The shorthand for us was America first. Um, but it didn't mean America alone. It didn't mean we didn't care deeply about the lives and the human dignity of every human being around the world. But we, we struck that balance by recognizing that we had so many tools in our kit bag, and we could deploy them in ways that were broad and differentiated to achieve our objective. First, to make sure that we secured freedom for America, but then to do uh, good, to be a force for good wherever we went. And so we often turned to our economic capacity, our diplomatic power, our ability to build up coalitions with like-minded countries on a particular issue. That's certainly what we did throughout the Middle East, and all the while making sure that our, our language, our rhetoric, the things that we spoke about, no matter whether we were talking about a, a security partner of the United States or an adversary, we were always clear about our expectations with respect to treating every human being with the dignity that they deserved just simply because they were a human being. Uh, we spent a lot of time on that. I spent a lot of time here in the States regrounding my State Department. We created a commission called the Unaidable Rights Commission to reground our foreign policy and 
the American founding tradition. Uh, th those are the pieces that come together to help uh, think about how American policy ought to be emplaced and empowered across the world to confront evil where it is, but also to make sure you're doing so in a way that's consistent with America's understanding of its own place in the world. Okay, so as Secretary of State, you never felt a, a deep tension because as America asserted its interests simultaneous with that was this constant emphasis on human rights. Let me, let me just look at some of the uh, issues you dealt with as Secretary of State and some of the countries that might be labeled uh, the worst offenders. The worst, of course, being, of course, uh, Iran, um, a country that preoccupied a, a lot of your attention and time and has indeed preoccupied so much of American foreign policy for the past 40 years. So the Trump administration withdrew um, the United States from the JCPOA and indeed increased sanctions. What do you, and of, then there was Qasem Soleiman, one of, one of, Soleimani, one of the most uh, boldest decisions of, of the administration uh, under your leadership as Secretary of State. What do you see are the main offenses of Iran? Why do they have to be contained? And why does a, an American human rights agenda have to hold Iran accountable? Well, look, as for human rights inside of their own country, they're among the worst offenders. They, they throw homosexuals off of buildings. Um, they treat their own people horrifically. The capacity for women to uh, have freedom and autonomy there is greatly limited. Um, they're, they're nasty people with respect to their own people. And I, one of the things we did was to make sure that we always supported the Iranian people and to differentiate that against the kleptocratic, theocratic regime that has taken charge and has the weapons today. But as for America's more broad interest, this is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. The State Department's reporting and the intelligence collected by the United States makes that unambiguously clear. They're conducting terror campaigns all across the world. And, you know, so seldom do we recall that it was Iran who supported Syria and expelling six million people from Syria, for goodness sake. Uh, this happened in the Obama administration where these people were forced to flee their homes and today reside all over the Middle East with uh, a million and a half in Lebanon, many, many inside of Turkey. This is a tragedy of epic proportions. Um, add to that uh, a nation that has a missile program and a nuclear program that is intent, you need only ask Iranian leadership, intent on the destruction of a free and democratic sovereign Israel. And this is something that America has a deep national security interest in pushing back against. And uh, the, the mistake that the, I think the administration before ours made was to allow Iran free reign to conduct its terror campaign across the world, to build out its missile program, and at best, delay their advancement in nuclear weaponry by a handful of years. Well, you're, Mr. Secretary, you truly held Iran accountable, and it was one of your greatest achievements. And, and let me be clear, I, I'm not here interviewing you, I'm so gracious, grateful for your time. Um, I'm not here interviewing you to try to get you on the record or even to try to make news. Rather, I so deeply respect your commitment to human rights. I think you are easily one of our most distinguished secretaries of state in, in our history. And um, I'm trying to understand uh, your perception of a moral foreign policy uh, by the United States of America. But to the extent that anything does uh, pertain to policy or the current administration, Biden administration, uh, if you feel comfortable discussing those things, you will. And if, if not, I, I completely understand because I, I want my focus really to be on what is a moral, what are the principles of a, of a moral foreign policy. But I guess I was always confused, given what you just said about the greatest state sponsor of terrorism. I was certainly confused by the Obama administration's desire to kind of 
grant Iran not hegemony in the Middle East, but maybe to be the anchor of the Middle East. That they thought that Iran could could be could change from being a terror funding actor to I don't know a, a peace exporting actor. Uh, that clearly uh, backfired. Are you concerned that we may see some of that same errant policy with the current administration? Well, you need only listen to what President Biden said during his campaign uh, and what those around him, the people that he has either now got confirmed or uh, are in the process of being confirmed, they, they are so deeply wedded to that agreement that I think they're prepared to give up an awful lot to do that. Look, we too, we, we, we wanted to enter into an agreement with Iran, but it had to be an agreement that ensured they could never have a nuclear weapon and we weren't willing to give them an inch to go do that. Uh, this is something that normal nations would simply uh, agree to. They, this is a country that has threatened the, the, the destruction of Israel and the little Satan there and the big Satan in the United States of America. And so I've watched in these opening days enormous concessions already made just to try and convince the Iranians to come to the negotiating table. That does not bode well. Uh, the, the Iranians, in the end, um, are a deeply immoral are the regime is a deeply immoral regime, and the United States should treat them as such. They, they understand, Rabbi Smiley, they understand strength and power and determination. And when they see appeasement, when they see that there is a weak United States of America, they are very likely to continue to extract value, value for themselves, value for the Quds Force, value for Qasem Soleimani's successor, value for Hezbollah and the militias inside of Iraq. Those are the Iranian objectives. They make it very clear. They make no bones about who they are and what their goals are. That is not a nation that the United States should use, to use your term, use as the anchor for stability in the Middle East. Well, you especially expect that after, even if President Obama could have argued, look, I, I'm going to try this at least. You know, let's try something new. It failed, and one is just uh, puzzled, mystified at why President Biden would pursue that failed uh, agenda, given that the definition of insanity is to try the same thing and expect radically different different results. Um, just before we move on from Iran, let's focus. There's the there's the abrogation of missile treaties. There's uh, there's the abrogation of, of their uh, nuclear controls. Let's focus on their genocidal intent, because, you know, genocide um, is something that you focused on a great deal as Secretary of State, especially in, in the last few weeks of, uh, um, of of serving as our the chief diplomat of the United States. I was so impressed watching your social media just every single day, holding China accountable with the Uyghurs, um, uh, Myanmar. You were just on fire holding countries accountable. But let's just begin with Iran because Iran has been has had this genocidal intent against Israel, as you said, the small Satan, the United States, death to America, the largest Satan. I'm not sure they could carry out a genocide against the United States because, thank God, we're too powerful. But against Israel, you know, they call Israel a one-bond state. It's, how is it that the current administration or the previous administration could negotiate with a government while they are expressing genocidal intent? I mean, you wore the uniform, you graduated number one at West Point, you swore an oath to defend our country, the Constitution and our rights and our, our values, does it surprise you that, that the greatest country on earth would negotiate with a government that is openly genocidal? It's a real head-scratcher, I must say. There has often been uh, enormous unanimity about protection and preservation of human rights around the world that was bipartisan in nature. There's a long history of that. And yet, for some reason, uh, President Obama and now President Biden are, are are seemingly prepared to give a free pass to the Iranians for this activity. And if not a free pass, certainly uh, look the other way as they 
uh, strive to cut a deal which they hope will ultimately reduce the risk of nuclear weapons. I, I get the seriousness of nuclear weapons in the possession of the Iranians. The best way to prevent them from getting that is to ensure that the regime doesn't have the resources to build out such a program. And we were a long ways there. We gave them enormous leverage in so doing to sit down at the table with a regime that won't forswear its will, its intent to destroy the state of Israel, I simply find confounding. Well, this was another hallmark uh, of the Trump administration uh, and its foreign policy, its foreign policy agenda under your leadership, that the United States was prepared to talk to, uh, let's call them bad actors, but never relieve them of intense uh, sanctions and and economic pressures. North Korea is an example. The president never uh, never lifted sanctions against North Korea. And indeed, the Singaporean summit seemed to have fallen apart because the president was insistent on one thing. You're either going to denuclearize completely on the entire Korean peninsula, or there will be no deal whatsoever. And, and he walked from a deal that might have earned him a Nobel Peace Prize, might have earned you a Nobel Peace Prize. But um, there was no, and that's what it, it seems, at least from the press reports, that Kim Jong-un, that's what he most wanted. If you lift the sanctions, we can talk. If you're not going to lift the sanctions. And that's what he was hoping from that summit. But your administration and you, Mike, gave no sanction to re the removal of sanctions. This was also the case with Iran. It, right? This, the, the regime in Iran has told this administration, look, if you lift the sanctions, we'll sit down and talk with you. The only rationale for the Iranians to actually eliminate their nuclear activity is the sanctions that are sitting in place. If you relieve them, putting them back in place can be done, but it is an enormously difficult undertaking. It took us months and months and months to build up the scope and scale and depth and complexity of the sanctions regime that sat in place when President Biden took office. It was certainly true in North Korea. Look, these, these leaders understand strength. Uh, they know how to exert their own influence. These are these are countries that are not remotely the size and scale of the United States of America, yet they have used their outside capacity to threaten the world with nuclear proliferation and gain advantage. To the extent the world permits them to do that, that is an enormous risk to the world, to appease these leaders and permit them to continue to build out these programs that they use to extort and threaten the world is a mistake. And it's why the United Nations placed global sanctions on North Korea at a scale that it had never done before under the Trump administration. It's why the work that we did to put sanctions on the Iranian regime, that pressure is real. We literally had our boot on their throat. We were making the regime pay, and they were paying by not being able to underwrite Hezbollah that threatened Israel. They were unable to pay their soldiers. They had to shrink their footprint inside of Syria. Those are real costs that were imposed as a result of our determination to ensure that American security and the security of our friends and allies around the world was foremost in our minds. You know, I still remember, Mr. Secretary, when I served as rabbi at Oxford, so um, I was friendly with uh, Professor Michael Aris. So he was <laughs> of Angang Suchi, a uh, great Buddhist scholar. Uh, he died, sadly, at way too young an age of cancer. I remember that she could not attend his funeral because she, she could, but she could not return to Myanmar. Um, and uh, very sad. Um, and at the time, Mr. Secretary, she was a great hero. She was a Nobel Peace Laureate uh, in Oxford. She was a great hero. Um, and then she took power in, in, in Myanmar. Her reputation is, is different now. Uh, I know some people had called for, for her to even be stripped of, a Nobel, of the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Um, but now she seems to be under, under house arrest. How does the United States handle something like that, where a leader who was once a great hero, won the Nobel Peace Prize for standing up to uh, a dictatorial regime, um, uh, a, a brutal militaristic regime, but then once she's in power, her reputation becomes a bit tarnished, only to see her then removed, it's a mess. And I know that you had focused on Myanmar as well, especially in the last few weeks and months of the administration. Yes, uh, it's a very complex situation, and her history is uh, a complex one as well. Uh, we, we made the determination early on in the Trump administration is that we knew who the worst actors were. We knew the individuals that were leading uh, the enormous destruction that took place there. My predecessor identified uh, this uh, activity as a crime against humanity there. Uh, it was certainly atrocious, whatever label one might put on it. Uh, and we made a, a real effort and we sanctioned uh, senior military leaders, some even further down, those that were directly responsible for the actions that took place there, the, the terrible tragedy that's taken there to the range of people. Uh, and then we worked diplomatically to try and build out a good solution, which could ultimately allow those people to return home and to uh, be free from the oppression that came from that uh, regime. Uh, for Aung Suu Kyi herself, we've now seen her move into a very different place. We saw her uh, struggle with how to exert the enormous goodwill that she had built up. I regret that she was not more successful and, and didn't press harder for the very things that she made so clear that were so important to her personally. And we know were so important for the people of that country and indeed more broadly in the region. It's a, a very sad story and one where I hope there will be real continuity. I think there will be between the policy that we had in place and that the President Biden's team will put in place. This is a place where I think there is a shared understanding of who the good guys and the bad guys are and how America can have a positive impact there. Well, thank you for everything you did to uh, preserve and protect life in Myanmar. Let's just move for a moment, if you don't mind, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, to the Bible. Uh, I have deep respect for your uh, Christian faith. You've spoken openly about it. I, I, I think you were extremely brave and courageous in sharing the, uh, the passion of your faith with the American public. We're, we are a very faithful republic. We have God stamped on our, even our, on our currency. I don't think there's any country in the world that has that. Um, and I think so much of our moral foreign policy does come from a deep-seated connection to God, a belief in God, and, and Judeo-Christian uh, values. So in Leviticus chapter 19, there is this beautiful and powerful verse, which has almost no precedent in any other uh, ancient uh, literature, even claiming to be prophetic or biblical, which is, thou shalt not, not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, that we can't be... Um, silent witnesses. We can't be innocent bystanders as, as, as people die, as people are murdered. Uh, as I said before, I was just electrified, especially in the last few months of the administration. You know, I guess maybe perhaps knowing that you had a little bit more of time, you were on fire, uh, just defending and protecting people all over the world. Um, it really impressed me as an American, and it it lodged a place of affection in my heart for you that will be eternal, God willing. How much of all of that activity to stop genocide, stand up for human rights, hold dictators accountable, get them to stop brutalizing their people, how much is it motivated by things like the Bible, chapter 9, uh, uh, Leviticus 19, thou shalt not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, or other biblical maxims or verses that are that are precious to you? That's a beautiful, a beautiful Old Testament verse. Uh, look, I, I've been open about the fact that I'm an evangelical Christian, uh, and that it informs the way I think about the world and my my fellow human beings. 
I, I am confident that the way I approached foreign policy and the way I presented opportunities to the president uh, was certainly inspired by that. Um, it also comes with a deep understanding that I, I swore an oath to defend and uphold the U.S. Constitution, uh, America's Constitution, and I, I know the history of that document as well, and how our founders thought about uh, faith and morality as central to the understanding of this nation as an exceptional nation,